Hello and welcome to the Untitled Gen X podcast. A podcast hosted by two childhood best friends dedicated to the pop culture that raised us. I'm Kate, a writer, a midwife, a current day pop culture know-nothing, but nobody puts baby in a corner when it comes to the pop culture of my youth. And I'm Lori, a writer and pop culture lover who's still not over how my so-called life left us hanging. Valentine's Day is just around the corner, and if you're looking for love, you've come to the right place. Today, we're spreading the love with 1993's romantic comedy blockbuster, Sleepless in Seattle, starring Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. But before we get into it, if you're enjoying the pod, we'd like to remind you to rate and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And just a friendly reminder, we're on Instagram and Facebook at the Untitled Gen X Podcast. Hey, Kate. Hey, Lori. Happy almost Valentine's Day. Yes. Happy almost Hallmark created holiday. (laughs) (laughs) I don't really care about Valentine's Day, to be honest, but that was the day I was proposed to. It was. This is true. So it's memorable for that fact. (laughs) In fact, my proposal, oh my goodness. Let's go through this because I know the story, but I would like (laughs) to hear it again. So I've been married how many years now? 22 years. A long time. But like way back when in 1998, I was a tender 21 years old. And my boyfriend was in a band. He was in a swing band because, you know, swing was really popular in the later 90s. Like we can thank a Gap ad for that. But (laughs) he played guitar in a swing band and he had a gig that night with the American Heart Association. So we weren't going to (laughs) actually spend. Hearts, get it? American Heart Association and Valentine's Valentine's Day. Day, it's, It's all very apropos. That's a good marketing person. It is. So we weren't going to actually be able to spend the evening together, but he gave me a card and it had a dog on the front of it. I remember. <laughs> I don't remember what I mean, I wasn't I there, but she showed me the card later. <laughs> <laughs> we did not have an audience. I was at my house. I lived with my parents still because I was still in college and um, this card had a dog on it and it was something like, like you're the doggone best. Or I, don't, I don't even know. It's a, a cartoon so romantic. dog. How did you not swoon? <laughs> I'm not like a dog person either. Like it wasn't even that, (laughs) right? right? (laughs) I mean, I am a dog person now, but at the time I wasn't. And I opened it and it was like blank. Like he hadn't written in it. Like it had words. The inside of the card had words, but like he hadn't written in it. And me uh, kind of being the dick I am, because I I don't know. (laughs) I I can can kind of be this way sometimes. I took the card and I kind of chucked it back at him. I said, you didn't even (laughs) fill out the card. What's wrong with you? And he got down on one knee. Like, I would have been like, nope, not doing it. Not doing it. You are ungrateful. (laughs) No, not him. Like, instead of writing inside the card, he was proposing. And, of course, I said yes. And then he was like, okay, got to go. Got a gig. And he left. That, That is my wildly romantic proposal story that I offered to you all. But in terms of like Valentine's Day and the commercialism of all of that, I would much rather just have someone express their love for me out of the blue on any given day. This is 100% how I feel. I feel like I don't care if you give me a card on the day that like American capitalism says you should. (laughs) Kate, here here she goes. Sorry. (laughs) She's launching, you guys. I care that you like give me a card because you're thinking about me. For sure. I don't care that you go and buy me a dozen roses. I care that like you pass by the flower shop on the way home on a random day and we're like, hey, I'm going to buy some flowers for I was my thinking girl. of you. Right. I've never been a fan of Valentine's Day. I don't care. I, hearts, please don't ever give me anything heart shaped. Like <laughs> <laughs> I dated a guy who like, he always said that I wasn't romantic and I disagree with this. I think I'm very romantic, but like, because I didn't like hearts and flowers and diamonds um, or hearts, hearts and rose, like all these like traditional romantic things. Right. Like he bought me like heart-shaped earrings and I was like. Mm, that's not you. In fact, that's really mm. interesting because anyone who knows you knows that. Right. For me, romance is honestly as simple as my husband makes a coffee in the morning every single morning. And like, I need that in my life. That is a very romantic gesture to me. Someone who's willing to go out and get me food. (laughs) Someone who goes and grabs my slippers because I always have cold feet. That's a romantic gesture. 
literally the most romantic thing that someone has ever done for me is that I was having breakfast with a guy that I really liked and I had blueberries and yogurt. And you know how sometimes your blueberries get little stems on them? As he's listening to me, like looking in my eyes, he reaches over and he pulls the stem off of a blueberry in my bowl that he noticed that I hadn't noticed, but was about to take a bite of. And I was just like, oh, because I don't know. It's so silly. It's such an everyday thing. But like he noticed this small little detail that was important to me. That's the kind of romantic that I am. Oh, this movie is all about romance and it's all about romance on Valentine's Day, ultimately. Yes, ultimately. And the lead up to it. And we talked briefly during the week about this and you were like, Meh. okay, I saw Sleepless in Seattle in the theater. I was in high school. This movie came out June 25th, 1993. And I loved it in the theater. Of course, it's Nora Ephron. Like, there's just so much great dialogue that's just so signature Ephron. And she's an amazing woman. We love her. I mean, When Harry Met Sally, so iconic. One of these days, we'll cover it. But watching it as someone who's maybe been married a really long time, I don't want to say like that's added a layer of cynicism to my opinion or how I feel about her. I just felt like it was good. I enjoyed it. I didn't enjoy it as much as When Harry Met Sally. I liked it. But the whole overarching theme of just magic and meant to be, I don't know. Which is interesting that I say that because I actually have a story about magic. I have a story about this feeling. And still, I came to this rewatch kind of with a little bit of like, eh. I will agree that When Harry Met Sally is kind of in a class all of its own. Sure. But for like just a sweet romantic movie, I really like this one. Like even after it was over, I was like, how did Lori not like it? Well, you know what? <laughs> I don't want to say I didn't like it. I liked it. I didn't love it. I didn't okay, love yeah. it the way I loved it when I saw it the first time. Part of what I like about it is this sort of question that's at the heart of it, right? Is do you love somebody because of that magic feeling and that, Ooh, I know it, or do you love them because, hey, they're a good person and they're nice and they love you a lot. And this is kind of the time in life when you're ready for it. Like she says something like, oh, it's time to grow up and, you know, do the right thing or something right. when they're registering for China. Mm-hmm. And some people do. And who am I to judge? That's their choice. It's their life. I could not do that. I believe in magic. I need that spark and that sort of feeling of kismet or whatever that makes you feel like this person came into your life for a reason. Okay. So I had that when I first met my husband. You were actually there. I was. So I was 17 and Kate and her other bestie had made friends with a couple of guys and they'd been hanging out with them. And I was invited to tag along and we went to this coffee shop that's sadly no longer there. It's now condos. The place where I got married is now a CVS. So, you know, yeah, that's romantic. It happens. And so it was like this cool little hangout spot. And we went there and I met him and I didn't really think anything of it. And it was fine. We didn't talk all night. And there was a park across the street and he had his guitar and we were all hanging out and he started playing Wild Thing. And we got to the part of the song that wasn't the chorus and only he and I knew the words. And all of a sudden we're both singing together and I look at him and he looks at me and I swear to God, Kate, I felt a lightning bolt through Mm -hmm. my body. I felt a sense of magic that I had never felt before. Of course, I was 17. I didn't have a lot of life experience. I don't know if you get to feel that lightning bolt multiple times in your life. You do. Sam asks the question. He says, I don't know that you get to do this more than once. And Right. And he also says, it just doesn't happen twice. Yeah, there you go. And so I felt it. And from that moment on, I was completely infatuated with him. And it was like a spark just through my body. And I swear to God, I knew. So this is something that I find interesting, though, because people are always like, oh, no, like I knew. And I will tell you that I have twice in my life had that feeling. Yeah. And it didn't work out. So I don't want to like poo poo anybody's like I knew, but like it's easy to say it in retrospect. I think it's bold to say it when 
it didn't work out. You know what I mean? Because like, I don't think it makes my feeling any less true, but I also think it makes it true that like sometimes that feeling isn't all that you need for a relationship to work. Right. I think that that spark and that feeling for me is a necessary ingredient to like moving forward with a relationship. I have been in relationships where that spark wasn't there. And I sort of tried to talk myself into it. I can see why somebody would. I can remember having a conversation with you. On the, I met this guy. He lived a few hours from where I lived. And he did all of the right things, right? Like he bought me dinner and he was polite and he just made an effort. Like he was great. And I just didn't have a spark for him. I really liked him. And I can remember driving to his place and I was on the phone with you. And I said, I just, I don't know. Like, I just don't have that like sparky butterfly feeling. And you're like, maybe these are grown up sparky butterflies. Maybe they feel different. And at that time I hadn't had them in a really long time. So I was like, maybe she's right. But then I met a guy later, like after this guy and was like, oh no, no. Sparky butterflies are a real thing when you're a grown up. So the moral of that story was don't come to me for relationship <laughs> for advice. Relationship <laughs> advice. Well, this film holds a special place in the heart of the Gen Xers because this was wildly successful. It made over $227 million worldwide. It was directed by Nora Ephron. As we said, it was her first big director job. Oh, really? Yeah. She wrote When Harry Met Sally. And she actually had been nominated for Academy Awards for Best Writing for Silkwood in 1983. And When Harry Met Sally in 89, and of course, Sleepless in Seattle. And this film was nominated for two Academy Awards in 1994. It lost both noms, but Mm. it was nominated for Best Original Song for A Wink and a Smile and Best Original Screenplay for the role of Annie, because God love Meg Ryan. She is an American treasure. We love her. They're both American treasures. Right. Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan are like some special kind of sauce together. I mean, they were in Joe versus the Volcano in 1990. Of course, Sleepless in Seattle, 93. You've Got Mail in 98, which dare I say, I kind of like more than this movie. Okay, I said it. There, I said it. I like You've Got Mail, but sometimes when I watch it, I'm like, Ah, he's really a jerk. He is a jerk. (laughs) And like Tom Hanks, you know, he's a really nice guy. So that it can be kind of tough to wrap your brain around, I know. But they also collaborated as recently as 2015 in a film called Ithaca. But for the role of Annie, Julia Roberts turned it down. She did say, though, Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks are just such a jewel of a fit in that. I guess what they did for that moment in time is sort of what Richard... Richard Gere, and I were doing Across Town. And of course, she's referring to the 1990 film Pretty Woman. So they were like magic in that moment. It's interesting because they have a lot of romantic chemistry together. They don't really have a lot of sexual chemistry They don't have any sexual chemistry. (laughs) Which is really interesting for a leading man and a leading lady. Other people considered for the role were Michelle Pfeiffer, She has a little bit more of an edge to her that I'm not sure would have been quite as endearing. Jennifer Jason Leigh, Jodie Foster. I think she is amazing. But again, she doesn't make me think like lighthearted rom-com. Right, (laughs) either. And Kim Basinger actually turned it down because she thought the premise of the film was ridiculous. I mean, maybe she stands by it, but I would be like, oh, like that has to be hard when you turn something down, particularly if you think it's dumb and then it becomes really popular. We were talking about the fact that Michael Keaton turned down Groundhog Day. Yeah. He went on to say later that he really regretted that choice. Yeah. I mean, and how can you know? Because also like, you know, you can end up making something really terrible and then all of a sudden you're attached to that movie forever and you're like, I knew, I knew it was going to be bad. We can't all be winners. This was a winner. So for the role of Sam, of course, played by our beloved national treasure, Tom Hanks, he turned it down before Efron did a rewrite of the script because he just didn't think he was right for it. It'd be so interesting to know what it was like before the rewrite because what was it that made him think he wasn't a good fit for it? Yeah. And also considered for the role was Dennis Quaid, who at the time was Meg Ryan's husband. Yeah. Well, and then Tom Hanks' wife plays his sister-in-law, right? His sister, sister sister-in-law. Plays his sister. 
Okay. Rita Wilson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We learn at the very start of the film that mommy got sick. Mm-hmm. They're at the funeral for Maggie, who passed away due to cancer. They kind of allude to that later. Mm-hmm. And he has an eight-year-old son named Jonah. So we find out that Sam is an architect, and they're living in Chicago at that time. And he basically tells a coworker, like, I need a new city. I need to be able to go somewhere without constant reminders of Maggie. Which, obviously, we need this to drive the story forward, because uh, it's not sleepless in Chicago. But <laughs> it's um, got the same ring to it. Right, it just really doesn't. Susie, his sister, tells him, like, oh, in a few months, you're going to start dating. I don't know. I don't know if, like, soon after your brother loses his wife that he was madly in love with, you go on to say something like, you're going to be dating soon. Like, People say really dumb stuff when people die. And people's favorite thing to say is like, it'll be better soon. And I understand because it's such an impulse to say that. Even like, I want to say that to people when they lose someone. And I remember just glaring at people when they would say that to me because I was like, I don't care how it's going to be later. It's really bad right now. Right. Like, I don't even know that it's appropriate to say it'll be different soon because it does evolve and change, but grief is a beast. It's with you always. Right. Well, and I think we're so uncomfortable with uncomfortable feelings in our culture. And so just holding space for people in the feelings that they're having can be really hard, but I think it's also really important. And we tend to want to move past them and say, it's going to be better. This is going to happen. But again, like I understand why they threw it in here because it drives the story forward. So now we're in Baltimore and it's 18 months later. We meet Annie in her loose French braid, which is really, (laughs) when I saw this movie back in 93, this was really the star of the movie to me back then. I was so focused on Meg Ryan's loose braid throughout the film. I have tried to have that braid and at times my hair was long enough, but no. So we meet her loose French braid and we meet her partner, Walter, played by Bill Pullman. It's a very formal name. Walter. (laughs) Did anyone ever call you anything but Walter? No. (laughs) Nope. Not even when you were a kid? No. (laughs) Because he is Walter. He is a Walter through and through. And they're getting ready to meet her family for the first time on Christmas Eve. And this is where we find out that they're engaged and um, he's allergic to pretty much everything. everything. And it's a sexy quality. We then see Annie and her mom in the attic. This is actually an important scene because her mom gives her her grandma's vintage wedding dress, which is really so beautiful. It is on the veil. Yeah. And her mom goes on and on about all the magic she felt upon meeting her husband, Annie's dad. Right. This is where we're introduced to this idea, this theme. Yes. This theme of magic. And Annie says, oh, I don't believe in signs. And she hugs her mom and the wedding dress rips. And Annie immediately, she just said, I don't believe in signs. She says, it's a sign. And her mom's like, you don't believe in signs. Right. So she's fighting that feeling. There's already a sliver of doubt there because she knows she doesn't have that magic feeling with Walter. Walter's a great guy. He checks all the boxes, perhaps, except for... Magic. Not allergic to everything <laughs> and, <laughs> right. and magic. Right. He's a good guy. Good guy. As we will, we will see how good a guy towards the end of the movie. Right. So like really, Annie, which is it? Is it science or no science? And part of me kind of understands it. Like she's a journalist. Her job is based in facts, right? Like she is getting down to the truth of situations and what is real and leaving emotion out of it. So in a way, I kind of understand that. Do you believe in signs? When I was younger, I really believed in signs. As I've gotten older again, like the the cynicism has crept in somehow, but I would very much like to believe in signs. I like the idea of them. I am somebody who kind of believes in signs, but they can go either way. And sometimes they happen and I'm like, no, no, that's, you know, that's not a bad sign. And then they are. Okay, well... Let's go back to my wedding ring or my engagement ring for a moment. So my engagement ring was platinum and it was vintage and I loved it. Anyway, I wore it all the time and I wore it in a hot tub before I got married and it cracked. And I was like, is this a sign? Like this is the very symbol. Right. Of our love. (laughs) Of our love and, and pending nuptials. 
And I really had to like compartmentalize that and be like, you know what? It's vintage. It's very thin. It got too hot and I broke it. Like it's not a sign. But like had the relationship not worked out, I could have easily revisited that and been like, that was the sign and I ignored it. So I don't know. Yeah, I think it's not so much that it's an event because sometimes events happen that aren't positive and they don't feel like signs to me. But like when the event happens and it feels like a sign, that's when I'm like, if it's bad, I'm like, oh no, when it's good, it's great. Okay, so Annie and Walter are going to go to Walter's house, but they're driving separately, like Walter's family's house. So Annie's alone in the car and she turns on the radio and she tunes into Dr. Marsha Fieldstone. They have a caller. It's eight-year-old Jonah from Seattle. This is Sam's son, whose Christmas wish for his dad is, he says, I think he needs a new wife. And this is kind of where the film lost me. I'll tell you, I think this was kind of a big part of it. This whole thing that Jonah's on a quest for a new mom and that his dad needs a new wife. And I get it. He knows his dad is sad, but I don't think at eight years old, a child who's lost a parent is hoping for a new replacement parent, a new partner for their parent. I just don't know that that's a thing that kids do. And so that felt disingenuous to me. And I honestly think that might be my biggest problem with the story. So I would agree that a lot of children would not do that. But I do think there are kids that would. I feel like I've heard from people who have said, from women mostly who have said like, oh, this happened and like my kid's, really want me to start dating. Like they can tell that I'm lonely and and they want me to have somebody. So I think it does happen. And I think where to me, it feels truthful enough is it's not like he wants any woman, right? Like he brings home this other woman and Jonah's like, ick, no. Right. I don't <laughs> um, like her. Her laugh is horrible. Her laugh is horrible. It is. It's a rough one. <laughs> so it's not like he just wants any person to fill that. But I think to me, the way that I interpreted it is that it sort of goes to how great the romance was between his mom and dad, that he wants his dad to have that again. He wants that in his life again. And he knows it, right? He knows that's not what's happening with this other woman. Victoria. Victoria. Yeah. Uh, So interestingly, because I'm often skeptical of things, it didn't throw me off because it seemed plausible. Okay. So Dr. Fieldstone, does she go by Dr. Marsha? Yeah, you can call me Dr. Marsha. (laughs) Dr. Marsha asks Jonah to get his dad on the phone. And uh, he talks to her and he he reveals that he lost his wife 18 months ago. He hasn't had any relationships since. He's not sleeping very well. And Sam tells her, Maggie made everything beautiful. It kind of broke my heart. I do have a theory that the perfect man to date is a widower who loved his late wife tremendously and had a really good relationship. I am shocked to hear you say that because I have always thought that would be the most difficult relationship to be in because you could never measure up to the woman he loved that died. Like you're always going to be that person that's like, you're great. But if I if I could still be with my deceased wife, that's who I would choose. So that's really interesting. And this may be that one, I'm not a jealous person at all. That's I don't have that issue. And two, it might say something about what I think of myself, uh, because I feel like I'm a really good partner. And so it wouldn't really worry me. But what it would say to me is like, this person knows how to have a good, successful relationship with a woman and how to love someone. Like They're capable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a jealous person either. And I think I'm a pretty decent partner. And still, I feel like just because grief is what it is, like who knows where anyone is in their grief journey at any given point. We know it's 18 months later, but that doesn't mean anything in terms of readiness to be in a relationship. So maybe Sam is fully ready. I don't want to date a widower before he's ready. <laughs> Let me be clear about that. I'm not like out like like but I just it just <laughs> you're not you're not you're not reading the obits and no and... <laughs> like oh they left yeah. So in talking about what made her so special, Sam says, I knew the very first time I touched her, it was like coming home. And Annie starts crying in the car listening to this. He says, it was like, and they both say magic. magic. 
We cut to Annie at work. She works at the Baltimore Sun and she's a reporter there. And Becky, played by Rosie O'Donnell, love her. In fact, Rosie O'Donnell, Rita Wilson, and Gabby Hoffman, who's also in this film, all work together in the movie Now and Then in 1995. Oh, I've seen that movie, but not in a really long time. (laughs) It's cute. And Tom Hanks, Rosie O'Donnell, and Bill Pullman also starred in A League of Their Own. And so... Becky shares an article about 2,000 women who called into a radio station after hearing Sam on the radio. And she suggests that Annie write a story about it. Right, because Annie's like, oh my gosh, I heard that in, in real life. So this is when a male coworker says, quote, it's easier to be killed by a terrorist than it is to find a husband over the age of 40. Annie says, that statistic is not true. And Becky says, that's right, it's not true, but it feels true. And I actually have a really interesting story about this. That statistic was based on a Newsweek cover story from June 1986 titled Too Late for Prince Charming? Which not only made that bold statement, but according to Megan Garber in a piece for The Atlantic that's titled When Newsweek Struck Terror in the Hearts of Single Women, it stated that the piece was deeply problematic due to its accusatory tone and, quote, its framing of marriage and career as being fundamentally at odds with each other. It's insinuation that single women have been, essentially, undermining their romantic goals by focusing on their professional ones. Now, even though Newsweek issued a retraction 20 years after publication, the New York Times said in 2006, the retraction doesn't matter. The article seems to have lodged itself permanently in the national psyche. And even Candace Bushnell of Sex and the City fame said in 2006, that Newsweek cover struck terror in the hearts of single women everywhere. So the lasting impact of that original story in June 1986, it's still talked about today. It is an interesting thing. And as a woman over 40 who's never been married, I have to say, sometimes it does feel like that. And I struggled with that a lot in probably my early 40s, to the point where I was sort of distraught. Like, I can remember going into a therapist's office and being like, I don't think that this is ever going to happen for me. So I need you not to tell me that it's going to happen and calm me down that way. Like, I need you to help me deal with the fact that it's not going to happen. That it's not going to happen or that it might not happen. That it's not. I'm, I'm a little verklempt even talking about it because it was that painful. I can imagine. Because what I realized, like this is a much deeper thing. I've considered writing a book on this, is that in our culture, we teach women Your life starts when you get married. Now, you were 22 when you got married. Mm -hmm. So, yes, this is true. But I realized I'd sort of been putting my whole life off waiting to get married. And I was like, am I just going to keep doing this? It was a big, hard thing to be like, oh, my gosh, this could never happen. And I need to be okay with that so that I can actually, like, have a life. And everyone's gut reaction is to be like, no, no, that's not true. That's, you'll find him. He's out there. And I was like, shut up. Like, I didn't want to hear it. And now I've sort of crushed a threshold where I'm like, maybe, do I, do I want to get married? Maybe. But I'm also sort of enamored with the life that I'm living and creating what I'm going to create. And if someone comes into that and it feels great and it's a good fit, but up until this point, I was ready to drop my whole life for that person. Right. And now I'm not. And I think that's a really good sign. And I feel like there was a time when you had a Walter in your life. Oh, I totally had a Walter. You could have decided, okay, so I don't have this magic with my Walter, but I could go on to get married and quote unquote, begin my life. And you made the hard choice not to, even though you had been waiting. Whereas Annie, you know, Becky suggests that Annie likes Sam and Annie says like, please, I'm madly in love with Walter. Like she just decides like, no, he's a great guy. I'm already engaged to him. He checks all the boxes and that's how it's going to be. I'm making that choice. But you made the alternate choice. I did. Like, let's be clear. It's not like I was engaged or he had proposed, but there was something in me that knew even all of the time that we were together and I cared for him. We, we loved each other, but there was this nagging feeling of like, something's just not right with this. 
it does check all the boxes. He's a good person. And yet something was missing. Was it magic? Oh, absolutely. That spark just wasn't there. And the truth is, I would rather die single than settle for something less than that. Ultimately, that's what Annie decides to. Right. I think this is why I like this movie so much. I don't know that you would watch it and be like, this is the deepest movie I've ever seen. I don't know. We're starting to get like <laughs> real deep on what would otherwise be considered really fluffy content. Right. Groundhog Day got surprisingly deep in a way I was not expecting. <laughs> Apparently, this is our gift. We take fluffy <laughs> pop culture and turn it into something deep and meaningful. And people are like, and this is why I'm tuning out. Right. <laughs> I, I thought this was going to be fun. I would like to trust that there are people listening who are like, yes, I need yes, this. Yes, let's get I'm, down to I mean, it. If Gen X is anything, Gen X is deep. Or, okay. We're deep. Are Come we? On. Yes. Gen X is filled with meaning. Angst. We're angsty. We are angsty, but I feel like indifference is almost the calling card of Gen X. Well, because we are so deep. And we're so neglected and ignored. It's like, oh, well, then I don't care anyway. It's our defense mechanism to be okay. like, whatever. It's fine. I'm fine. I don't need you. So it's a trauma response. Exactly. Right. It totally is. Gen X is just like, we don't need you. We have each other. Okay. So on New Year's Eve, we see Annie and Walter make plans to meet in New York on Valentine's Day. Oh, we didn't even say Dr. Marsha Fieldstone dubbed him Sleepless in Seattle. We didn't even make that point. Right. So they get a ton of fan letters in the mail addressed to Sleepless in Seattle. And Sam says, this is not how it's done. I'd much rather see somebody I like and ask them if they want to get a drink. I wonder if it still works that way. And yeah, like apparently it does not. His friend, Rob Reiner, is telling him what it's like. It's so great. He says, you have to be friends first. Then you neck. And that could go on for years. Then you have tests, as in... STD tests. Yes. Then you get to do it with the condom. The good news is that you get to split the check. Right. Jay, played by Rob Reiner, he actually was the director of When Harry Met Sally. Right. But he goes on to mention some kind of sexual act called tiramisu. I don't think he's talking about a sexual act. I think he's legit talking about tiramisu. Apparently, TriStar received like 30 phone calls a day from people asking what tiramisu was. Of course, tiramisu is a dessert. The way he says it makes you think that it's some sort of sexual act. And then Reiner has gone on record to say that he finds tiramisu, quote, overrated. So this is what I think is that what he was talking about is that like women order tiramisu for dessert and you're going to find this out because you're going out to dinner with women. So I think that's what he meant. I think he meant a sexual act. First of all, what I learned from news.com.au, tiramisu was invented inside brothels in the gorgeous northern Italian town of Treviso. Renowned for its sexually relaxed mores and pleasure-seeking inhabitants. In Italian, tiramisu literally means pull me up, lift me up, or more literally, pull it up. So interesting little tidbit there. So I did find it on Urban Dictionary. Okay. And I'm just going to say that if you really want to know, feel free to Google it. It's, uh, It's not romantic. Let's put it that way. Okay. So we see Annie and Walter in bed and he's got all the allergies and tissues and a humidifier and like she can't sleep. So she turns into Dr. Marsha and we hear a promo spot for the program. And interestingly, Efron, she's the voice of Desperate in Denver. Oh, I like that. that Okay. Yeah. But even just upon hearing Sleepless in Seattle talk, Annie cries again. So this is when Annie goes to her brother. Dennis, played by David Hyde Pierce. And she tells him, I've been fantasizing about someone I've never met. What I really don't want to do is end up always wondering what might have happened if I had only done something. And this is when she convinces herself, I just have cold feet. So I do feel like the world is divided up into two types of people. The people who are like, what would happen if I did this totally wild thing just so I would know? And people who are like, That's totally wild and crazy. And nope, I'm going to stick with the path that I know. Which type are you? We all know I'm the second kind of person. Yeah. And we all know the type of person you are. Yeah, for sure. I am the person who is like, I need to know. And there's nothing wrong with waiting and seeing. People who wait and see have much more stable, easy lives than I do in a lot of ways. They don't move 27 times in 28 years or whatever my number is up to now. 
Well, Sam decides to call Victoria and plan a dinner date. And in the meantime, Annie and Becky are watching the classic romantic film An Affair to Remember. Which I have never seen. Have you seen it? No. No. Annie says, quote, now that was when people knew how to be in love. And Becky, she's like, you don't want to be in love. You want to be in love in a movie. Right. So Annie decides she needs to reach out. And she writes a letter to Sam and Jonah, which is the difference, right? All the other fan letters are addressed to Sam. Sam. She says, like, I've got to do this because what if this man is my destiny and I never meet him? So with Becky's help, you know, she writes this letter and they come up with this idea to meet on Valentine's Day atop the Empire State Building, just like in the film An Affair to Remember. So this is where Annie uses her journalism contacts to send a facsimile to a detective agency for info on Sleepless in Seattle. So this is like the beginnings of using a computer to like <laughs> look people up that you're interested in dating, right? Like we've come a long way. We have way more resources. Right. Like but- we don't have to contact a detective. You do some impressive PI work when you're dating someone, like through online dating. This is why I'm very close-lipped in online dating about what I reveal to people, because I can take slivers of information and totally track somebody down. And I happened to have lived in a few different states where they had open circuit court records. So once you know somebody's name and you have like an approximation of like how old they are, their birth date, their birth year, you can look at the court record. Find out a lot about people, huh? I have on a, like two occasions found somebody who had restraining orders against them and was like, and I'm done. Yeah. So Sam is getting ready for his date. Jonah gets his hands on the letter from Annie and he loves it. He thinks it's a sign. So while Sam's on his date with Victoria with the annoying laugh, he receives a phone call like at the restaurant. At the, remember remember that? that? <laughs> remember when you didn't have cell phones? So if somebody needed to reach you in an emergency, they called the place that you were at. Jonah is bold. He's like, dad, we got to go to New York on Valentine's Day. We got to meet Annie. And Sam is super pissed. Like Jonah, I'm on a date. You're ridiculous. Did we mention the detail that Annie doesn't send the letter? She crumples it up and her best friend sends it. I miss that. Oh, yeah. She's like, this is ridiculous. And she crumples up the letter and she throws it down. And Rosie O'Donnell, Becky, picks it up. And so when uh, Jonah opens it, it's all crumply, like, and it's been, like, smoothed out. Ah. So she she won't learn until later. She gets a letter from Seattle. Right. And that's when Becky is like, I sent your letter. <laughs> Okay. So while Sam is at dinner, the private investigator takes pictures of him. Right. Creepy much? (laughs) Yeah, I know. To send to Annie. Victoria, the date, is getting really friendly with Sam and Jonah. Like all of a sudden, she like wants to cook dinner for them. And I kind of thought like, that's fast. Yeah. Wouldn't you wait until you knew this relationship could be something? Yeah. So Jonah sees Sam and Victoria kiss and he gets upset and he calls Dr. Marsha. Right. <laughs> and Becky calls Annie and tells her, you got to listen. And Jonah's like, my dad's been captured by a hoe. What am I going to do? Right. Oh my God, you're eight. <laughs> right. Jessica, played by Gabby Hoffman, is Jonah's little friend. And she's, right, little Gabby Hoffman. She tells Jonah that she loves Annie's letter and it's Y-O-H. It's your only hope. So this is when Annie tells Becky, "Um, I'm going to do a story, wink, wink, on radio shows, and and I got to go. Sam takes Victoria to the airport. Again, it's a move. It's a bold relationship move. When airports are involved, that's investment. And and they discussed this in When Harry Met Sally. That is true. So he's at the airport. He says goodbye to Victoria. And he basically tells Jonah, like, look, Jonah, this is what single people do. They try on other people to see how they fit, but everyone's an adjustment. Sam goes on to say, like, there's no such thing as a perfect. And then he stops short because he sees Annie coming off a plane. And it's like he knows. He senses some magic. Now Annie's in the car with a a giant paper map. Oh, my God. Those were the days. Right. (laughs) This is kind of weird. This is a really bold stalker move. I'm sorry, Annie, you're kind of a stalker. Like she goes to their house. 
she totally stalks him. And I thought to myself, isn't it interesting that in movies, like when a woman stalks somebody, it's considered like cute and romantic. And then I was like, oh, except in Fatal Attraction. Right. But, but I mean, if that were a male character doing that, or really in, in honesty, if that were anyone doing that, it would be creepy. And this is why I'm so private about my information because people do. I've heard stories from women who are like, I happened to like mention to this guy where I worked and then he like showed up at my door. Oh work. my God. I mean, what if he showed up at your door and that's right. what Annie did. And it's like, okay, we forgive it because Annie has a heart of gold and she's so sweet and she's America's sweetheart. And we but love Meg Ryan. doesn't know that. <laughs> but like, what? Don't do that, people. Don't don't be like, no. it's going to be a romantic gesture and I'm going to go do this thing. Katie, it was a real stalker move because they weren't home and then she sees them on the boat and then she gets in her follows car them. and follows them and then stands behind this like little building across the street and watches them play on the beach. Um, Annie's a stalker. Like, I'm sorry, yeah. I need to call it out. No, like I have that same thought too. I was is like, it romantic is or is it dangerous? Like, these are the questions we dare ask. I don't think that it's romantic in the end. It's creepy. Somebody once has said to me that things that you're so happy people do when you are really into them are completely creepy when people do those same things and you're not into them. And it's really true. Like if you go on a date with a guy and you think that they're awesome and you're like, oh my gosh, I really like this guy. Like, I hope he likes me. And he sends you a text that night and is like, hey, I had a great time. Like, I really liked meeting you. You're like, oh, this guy's awesome. Great. You go out on a date with a guy, you really don't like him. You're like, oh, I don't want to see him again. And he sends you a text that night saying the exact same thing. You're like, he's so needy. Or like, I can't stop thinking about you. You're like, ew, don't think about me. I don't like you. Then they do some kind of like romantic gesture of like waiting for you outside of your work with flowers. And you're like, oh my God, that's so great. Somebody you don't like, you're like, stalker. <laughs> so Restraining order. Yeah. The key is if you're the person who's going to do that, you better know which one you are, right? Because otherwise it's going to be bad. And otherwise you could have your day in court. Right. Yeah. So Annie calls Becky from her hotel room and she's like, I watched him. I I, I couldn't do it, but I'm going to talk to him tomorrow. And she asks Becky if she's crazy. And Becky says, no, that's the weirdest thing about it. I don't know if the law would agree, Katie. I really don't. Because that's not the weirdest thing about it. The weirdest thing about it is that she followed them and went to his house. Yeah. I mean, I remember in high school when we liked a certain boy or a boy had done something wrong to you. And when you would you. call. Well, we would do a lot of drive-bys. We would drive mm -hmm. by their house. Is their car at home? Where are they? What are they doing? It's the Gen X equivalent of like stalking somebody's social media. Right. Like we didn't have social media. So we had to drive by their houses. Do it in person. Yeah. So the next day, Annie does go to see them and she's about to make her move when a woman shows up and she thinks it's a romantic interest right. and it's really his sister. And so there she is. She stops short. She's standing in the middle of the street. And this is a nod to an affair to remember when the female character gets hit by the car. Oh. And this is why she can't meet up with Cary Grant. Right. There's an oncoming truck. It honks at her to get out of the way. Sam hears the honk. He sees her and they lock eyes and he says, hello. And then a cab, of course, almost hits her. And we see her back home telling Becky, all I could say was hello. And that is a line from An Affair to Remember. And Becky tells her it's a sign. Right. Here we are again, signs. Annie gets her letter from Sleepless in Seattle. It's, you know, supposedly from Sam saying they are <laughs> M-F-E-O, made for each other. And, of course, it was written by Jonah. Jonah is essentially really mad at Sam because Sam's going to go on an overnighter and he's going to get to do it with Victoria. And he hasn't <laughs> done it in a really long time. And Jonah's mad and he doesn't want him to go and they fight. And he books a flight to New York to be there on Valentine's Day to meet Annie. Yeah. I don't need you to go, dad. I'll do it myself. Right. It helps when your best friend's parents are travel agents right, there you go. and leave their computers unattended. It's rather serendipitous, actually. <laughs> All of a sudden, you know, Sam is ready to go on this trip and oh my God, Jonah's not there. And we see Jonah on the plane, just making his way to New York as an eight-year-old. Right. Doo -doo -doo. No big deal. Jessica has to tell Sam 
where Jonah is. And Sam's like, oh my God, he's on a plane alone. And this kind of is where it lost me too. Like, why didn't Sam call the police? Right. Why didn't they intercept him at the airport? <laughs> at LaGuardia or wherever. Exactly. Yeah. Like he's at JFK or LaGuardia. He's going to get <laughs> off this flight number at this time. Like have a police officer waiting there. Instead, Sam flies all the way to New York from Seattle, which is not a short flight. All those hours, right. he doesn't know where Jonah. That's a really good point that I was at that point, I had suspended my disbelief so thoroughly that I didn't even question it. So these were the things that kind of bogged me down because I'm like, okay, as a parent, if my eight-year-old and eight-year-old is a young kid, and I know Jonah is savvy and he's smart, but he's still- And he's from Chicago. And he's from Chicago. But but still, it's New York City. I was a little nervous going to New York City, and I think I was 40. (laughs) And I have traveled all over the world. Girl, I flew home from Mexico alone as a 12-year-old. And it was terrifying. He's eight years old, flying across country. Yeah, Yeah. a cop should have been there. Right. Would have called the airline. Or at least the airline could have, like, snagged him and, you know. And said, okay, you're not getting off the plane. We're going to wait here. Your dad's on his way. So Jonah's on his way to the Empire State Building on Valentine's Day. He tells the cabbie, I'm going to meet my new mother. Like, what? Like, she wrote you one letter. She's your new mom now? Well, he just knows. It's magic. He's eight. <laughs> it's a sign. Oh, my God. Th- I thought that was kind of cheesy. But whatever. He goes to the top of the Empire State Building. He's looking around for Annie. She's not there. And he's waiting there until nighttime. I hope he brought snacks because that's a long time to wait. That is a long time. Yeah. Annie goes to have a Valentine dinner with Walter, and they're seated right by a window facing the Empire State Building. One might say that that was a sign. It's kind of a sign. (laughs) Annie tells Walter that she can't do this anymore, and he takes it way too well. This is where you're like, wow, he really is a good guy. But this is the other thing, is that I suspect that on some level he must have known. He knew. Yeah. This is when the Empire State Building lights up with a big heart And Annie says, it's a sign. I have to go. A literal heart sign. Right. She finds it romantic, Katie. She finds hearts romantic, unlike you. That would have been hard for me if I were in her shoes. I would have been like, oh, now I can't go because now it's just cheesy. (laughs) Oh, no. It took a cheesy turn. So Sam rushes to find Jonah at the top of the Empire State Building, and he finds him, and he hug and cry and and he's like we're okay right have I screwed it up for the both of us and I get that Sam is relieved you know to find his eight-year-old son but like I would have been so pissed I would have been so mad at Jonah in that moment I would not have been nearly as understanding so I am but I also would have called the cops so I wouldn't have never gotten to that point (laughs) so whatever I was gonna say I'm not a parent But I think I do understand the idea that, like, at least initially, you're just so relieved that you're not angry. Like, I would imagine that, like, on the cab ride back to the hotel, (laughs) there would be... Jonah got a talking to? (laughs) Very stern talking to. Sam and Jonah, you know, head down the elevator to leave, and they miss Annie going up to the top. Right, because she gets there too late. They're not letting people up. But the security guard or the person in charge... She tells him why she's there. And he, of course, and I would imagine anybody who works at the Empire State Building on Valentine's Day Day knows the story. (laughs) But also he's like, oh, that was my wife's favorite movie. Like, go ahead, go ahead. It's okay. And I have to say, sometimes things like that happened. I, uh, I used to work for a certain store and we had flowers and we were closed. And I was very strict about like being like, no, you can't come in, we're closed. And this guy came by and he was like, please, please. And I was like, no. And he goes, my wife's at the hospital down the street and she just had a baby and I need to bring her flowers. And I was like, have all the flowers for free. I was like, you are lucky that the soon to be midwife is manning the door. And so I did. I gave him the flowers for free. Sam and Jonah are heading down the elevator. Annie reaches the top. There's nobody there, but she does see a backpack, a Seattle backpack. And then Sam and Jonah come back to retrieve the missing backpack. Sam says, it's you. And she says, it's me. And Jonah says, are you Annie? And Annie says, yes. And Sam says, you're Annie. And this is when he reaches out his hand to her and they walk out holding hands and looking at each other and smiling a lot. 
So this is the part he talks about how he knew with his wife, he knew when he touched her hand to help her out of the car. Mm-hmm. And so he knows when he touches Annie's He hand. has the magic hands. Yep. And then they're just all googly eyed for each other all the way down oh, the elevator. He's a magic man with magic hands. Right. Here, this is a love story between Sam and Annie who literally spend two minutes on film together. Right, like essentially. Which you almost don't even realize. No, you don't. Because I feel like I remember somebody being like, oh, well, you guys were in Sleepless in Seattle. And they were like, sort of. (laughs) Two minutes of screen time. Isn't that wild? You know, because, yeah, they wouldn't have been on set together necessarily for any reason. (laughs) It's so crazy. It is. It's crazy. Like they would have done, obviously, like all the promotion work and stuff for it. But like actually filming. Filming, yeah. And actually, this is a little side note, but. While Tom Hanks was filming this movie, on his days off, he was voicing Woody for the original Toy Story. Oh, interesting. At the same time, yeah. He was a busy man. A very busy man. Well, we love him, right? Can't get enough of Tom Hanks. Need him Tom in our Hanks. lives all the time. Yeah. Oh. yeah. And, you know, he's interesting because he does often play this kind of character. Yes. But he also plays other characters, too. Like, we seem to have allowed him to do that in a way that we don't allow Meg Ryan to do it. (laughs) True, right? Sadly, in 2006, Efron was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia, and she died June 26, 2016, from pneumonia. Hmm. Her son, Jacob Bernstein, directed an HBO documentary about her life called Everything is Copy. But in terms of the legacy of this film... There was a musical adaptation, and it took a really, really long time to get off the ground. But it did ultimately premiere in May 2013 at the Pasadena Playhouse. And you and I have seen several shows at the Pasadena Playhouse. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, I guess in talking about the film with you, I can sort of focus more on the magic of the film than the nitty-gritty details of like, Sam, why didn't you call the cops? (laughs) Your son is missing. I was kind of bogged down in that. But I mean, overall, it's a pleasant, fluffy feeling. And it really does sort of... Evokes magic. Yeah, it evokes (laughs) magic. If you've never seen it and you're looking for some just kind of a light-hearted rom-com. Something fun to do on Valentine's Day, either on your own or with your significant other or not so significant other, then there you go. Or even with your Walter. If you have a Walter that you suspect is a Walter, be careful because you (gasps) might watch this movie and be like, yeah, he is my Walter. So word of caution, if you watch this film with your Walter, it might... They might not be your Walter anymore, but you know what? My Walter went on to be somebody else's Sam. So there you go. And that's okay. I would still choose to be Annie. Thanks so much for joining us. If you can't wait to hear more, please remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you're feeling chatty, feel free to drop us a line at theuntitledgenxpodcast.com. We hope you keep in touch, beautiful people. Bye. Bye.